You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Don't expect those companies, the incumbents, to change, but that doesn't mean their customers won't change. It is incredibly unfair and naive to think that oil companies should have capitalism on the way up and socialism on the way down. For April 13th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Demand for battery storage of grid power is growing quickly now as renewables reach higher levels of market share and the economics of storage make it competitive to shift some wind and solar production to hours when they're not generating. And as we discussed recently in episode 168, although there are many kinds of electrical storage systems, it looks like lithium-ion batteries with four hours of storage duration or less will continue to be the dominant electricity storage technology for at least the next two decades, with the need for seasonal storage and longer duration storage only really coming into play when renewables have reached a high share of power generation, like 60% or more. Or so we think today. If we look closely at the many models for energy transition that have been done to date, we can see that essentially all of them assume that heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, or HVAC, will be supplied by conventional furnaces that burn a fuel, like fuel oil or natural gas, or by electric heat pumps, which use electricity to move heat between the outdoor air or the ground and buildings. And these heating and cooling loads are very substantial. According to the IEA, heat is our largest sector of energy demand. Providing heating for homes, industry, and other applications accounts for around half of total energy consumption. But what if those modeling assumptions are wrong? What if we could provide heat directly by saving or recovering waste heat and then using it as heat without going through the conversions and energy losses, as you know if you listen to our Energy Basics mini-series, of converting heat to electricity and then back to heat? If we could meet the need for heat using thermal storage technologies, we could radically reduce the anticipated demand for both renewable generation and battery storage that would ultimately be converted to heat. In turn, that could substantially reduce the expected need for seasonal storage as well. But there's been very little modeling of the energy transition that assumes thermal storage will play much more of a role in the future than it does today. And today, it mostly exists in the form of district heating systems, which, when they're also used for cooling, are more properly called district energy systems. But surprisingly little attention is given to district energy systems, as they're often perceived as the older, less sexy brother to modern battery storage technologies. So I decided to correct that and produce a much overdue show dedicated to thermal storage and district energy systems. And for our guest, we have Daniel Merlis-Neum, a postdoctoral researcher from the Technical University of Denmark, who wrote his PhD on flexible district energy systems. Daniel is not only an expert on thermal and district energy, he's also a former analyst in the IEA's Renewable Energy Division, an analyst in the district heating think tank Green Energy, and a consultant in the district energy consultancy Plan Energy. He also has an occasional podcast called Energy Policy Cast, where he discusses recent research out of the Technical University of Denmark. He's a longtime fan of the show, and it's a pleasure to have him share his knowledge with us today. Then in the news segment, we'll have an extra long episode of our recurring segment, Coal Death Watch. But before we go to the interview, announcements, announcements, announcements. announcements. 
We'd like to welcome our latest group licensee, the New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment. As you'll hear in the news segment, there are important energy transition decisions being made in New South Wales, so we're pleased to have that agency listening to the best available information on the progress of the transition globally. Welcome. And now, our conversation with Daniel Sneum, recorded February 28, 2022. Let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Daniel, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks a lot, Chris. I've been enjoying your podcast for a long time, so it's really an honor to be on board. Thank you. And actually, you've got a podcast of your own, don't you? Yes, I do. And just a shameless plug for it. It's called Energy Policycast, and it's been mistreated horribly. I haven't published in a while, but occasionally we do, <laughs> we do try to publish our research here from the Technical University of Denmark. Great. I'll make sure to link that into the show notes. All right, so today I want to talk about thermal storage, but not the stuff that's usually discussed under that heading, which is heat-based storage systems of various kinds that are ultimately used to generate electricity. Instead, I want to talk about using thermal storage that is directly used to provide heating and cooling without electricity and without batteries. This is a big subject as there are quite a few kinds of thermal storage, and since you've done a lot of research into district energy, including both heating and cooling, I think we should start with that. So let's start with a few fundamentals here. How do you define district energy? Yes, that's a good place to start, and this is where I'm coming from, and I'm afraid it's going to be a bit of a long answer, but hopefully you'll bear with me. No problem. Also because when I get asked this question, people quite quickly run for the buffet when I start explaining, which <laughs> tends to be how it works when you try to explain things and the heat side of things. But essentially, district energy is the supply of heating or cooling in a local environment. And that local environment can be a few buildings or a whole city. Then on top of that, you can add the production of electricity. So in summary, it's essentially the local production of heating and or cooling and possibly electricity. All right. That's actually pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And so it's more than storage, isn't it, though? It's actually a complex of different technologies that come together. You got it right, because district energy, I would say, is actually infrastructure in the way that it can be understood as a storage type, because it can store heating or cooling. It's transmission as well, because the heating and cooling needs to be transmitted and distributed to the end users. And it can also be an energy sink from let's say, industries that supplies excess heat. And it's supply, of course, if you have a heat generating unit that supplies the heat. So different from, let's say, a wind farm or a solar farm, this encompasses the full energy supply infrastructure as an entirely independent system. Okay. And so just to kind of correct what I said a minute ago when I said it doesn't use electricity, of course it uses electricity to pump heat around and so on, but the electricity is not being used to directly produce heat. So that's where thermal storage is kind of a different technology. Exactly. Okay. So what are some of the advantages of district energy over conventional HVAC systems or boilers? I think the main advantage is that you have the ability to utilize heat sources which would otherwise just be wasted. So let's say that you have a very low cost heat source in the form of geothermal or waste heat from a data center. Instead of cooling that off in a river, you can actually heat homes or industries with that heat. And that's one of the main claims of district energy, that you can pick the low-hanging fruits and actually supply or perceive heating as a service, just like Amory Lovins' energy as a service and people want hot showers and cold beers. 
So you go the place where you can find the service in the cheapest possible manner. And that can be something which is not within the traditional scope of the electricity system, like the examples I just mentioned of excess heat use, for instance. Right. And so how is it that it actually can do heating and cooling? Right. So heating and cooling is supplied by various types of sources. And I would say maybe if I can just take a step back, because some smart people defined different generations of district heating and cooling. And I should say I'm coming from the cold Nordics, so I'm used to saying district heating. District heating and cooling is interchangeable in the sense that many of the concepts work in the same way. You just supply either heating or cooling or both. Which is why we call it district energy rather than just district heating. Yeah, okay. And I tend to use all those terms interchangeably, so don't be confused if I <laughs> use different terms. Right. <laughs> so, But just to go back for a moment, just to explain the different types of district energy, because I think they're important to understand before we go any further. So if you'll allow me to, just to progress through the last century or so of around the 1880s, we had the modern kind of district energy invented, and that was the first generation based on steam, so very high temperatures. And then progressing into the 1930s or so, we have the second generation, which lowered the temperature so much that instead of steam, we can supply the heating or cooling through hot water or cold water. Now I'm mainly talking about district heating in terms of these generations. And then the third generation from the around 1980 to the current day is, is even lower temperature. And the reason why we are increasingly focusing on lowering temperatures is that we can supply the heating or cooling with additional amounts or different kinds of heat or cold sources. So let's say that we have heat from a data center we can just increase that heat slightly through, for instance, a heat pump and then feed it into a grid at a quite low temperature that doesn't need to be boiling point, but much lower than that. So the fourth generation is the kind of district heating that can essentially utilize most different kinds of excess heat sources, thereby providing the most flexible and the most fuel efficient energy system or district heating system. So hopefully that makes a bit of sense. Yeah, that's helpful. So in all of these cases, we're basically talking about water. Right, right. <laughs> As the thermal transfer fluid, either it's liquid water or steam, and it's being cycled through a system and going through a heat exchanger. And so you're cycling it one way, it's delivering heat to a building, let's say you cycle it the other way, and it's pulling heat away from the building. Exactly. Just to put a minor footnote on that one, Right now, I'm seeing project proposals being made, changing the medium from water to different kinds of fluids mm. that can make it act more like a heat pump. But heat pumps are very esoteric technology, so maybe we shouldn't go into that right now. All right. Well, maybe we'll get back to that because that is an interesting thing. Right. But yeah, I just wanted to kind of give people an idea of what exactly is happening here. So mm. that's all it really is. There's a liquid that's being cycled around between a hot place and a cold place, and it's moving the heat around. That's basically it. And one of the advantages to this low temperature source aspect of it is that it's better from an exergy standpoint for those energy geeks out there. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that's actually something we discussed with Robert Bean way back in episode 53, where his analogy was you could put a finishing nail in with a sledgehammer or with a tiny little hammer, you know, a finishing hammer. The exergy is going to be better if you're using the tiny little hammer 
because it's a tiny little nail. And I remember him saying something clever like, when Judgment Day comes, we're going to be judged on our exergy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I very much like that picture in it. All right. So, you know, I particularly like the fact that waste heat can be used as a source, not only mm. from sources like manufacturing or industrial sources, but all sorts of sources. In 2020, for example, London launched the world's first project to harvest unwanted heat from the subway system, known as the tube, and use it to warm more than 1,300 homes, two leisure centers, and a school in Islington. Anyone who's ridden the tube knows that it can get pretty toasty down there. And curiously, when the tunnels were first dug in the 1920s, they were actually advertised as a place to stay cool <laughs> because it was mm. 14 degrees C or about 57 degrees Fahrenheit down there like any other place underground. But over the years, heat has accumulated and heated up the whole system so that heat is now something they'd like to remove from it. And according to one source I found, because I was curious about, so where did all this heat come from? Half of it comes from just the friction of trains applying their brakes. Mm -hmm. And about 21% of it is generated from the aerodynamic drag and friction of the trains, which I would not have guessed was that much. Another 21% comes from the electric motors and the drive and the auxiliary systems. And only about 2% comes from the body heat of passengers. So I thought that was fascinating how those sources of heat over basically a century could accumulate and eventually take it from this underground system that was nice and cool and the same temperature as all the other places underground to a place that was actually kind of uncomfortably warm, certainly in the summertime. So they can actually use that heat for buildings now. And that seems like a real win-win to me. It does. And it's such a good illustration of the versatile supply of heating because this is, of course, a very unexpected way to generate heat. I think that there is a notion that we, I think, especially apply in Europe, which is called power to X, which is that you can use power to generate a lot of different kinds of other energy forms, which is typically in the form of fuels. But I would like to sort of turn it around and have this X to heat, a notion where you can generate heat in a multitude of ways. And then just as a side note to the London example, I think it's it's very unusual that you have a storage which is charged over a century and then you start discharging. So probably that sets the record for charging and discharging cycles of energy storage, I would guess. <laughs> That's an interesting way to think about it. Well, you know, I just think it's a fascinating subject. It's actually a project that I first heard about in 2019 when I was talking with Leo Murray in London. Mm -hmm. So that system actually does use heat pumps. It takes the water temperature that it gets from extracting heat from the tube, and then it increases it to about 80 degrees C using heat pumps, which makes it suitable for domestic and commercial central heating systems. Right. But then the fan has the potential to operate in reverse and supply cooler air to the tube during the summer months, which I think is super cool. And so this hot water basically gets pumped around a network of insulated underground pipes. And the heat is transferred to communal heating system loops on on these housing estates using heat exchangers. So right. actually the heating bills for council tenants connected to the network they think will be cut by about 10% compared to other communal heating systems. And those themselves cost about half as much as standalone heating systems heating individual homes. So this is actually a much cheaper way to heat buildings than just hooking everything up to a heat pump. Right. And I think it also serves the purpose that Quite often I'm asked about the cost and the feasibility of district energy. 
And people sort of expect the same kind of answer that you can give for, let's say, a solar farm, which uh, persistently sets new records. And you hear about the the most recent U.S. cents per kilowatt hour that you can install PV for. Right. And the same thing is actually not possible for district energy because already now we have examples of very, very low costs that say U.S. cents per kilowatt hour. And we also, in the other end of the scale, have examples of very, very high prices. So, of course, there's room for improvement, but it doesn't exactly work the same way as when we usually discuss in the electricity sector. That's a great point, because as you mentioned at the start of the conversation, district heating or district energy is basically infrastructure. So you can achieve cost efficiencies of scale as you scale up manufacturing of something that's basically just stamp it out and repeat like you do with making solar cells. <laughs> when you're doing infrastructure, there's no efficiencies of scale. It, it costs what it costs to dig up dirt and to move it somewhere and to put something else there and to put in pipes. You know, It's just yeah. physical infrastructure stuff. It's very difficult to bring down the cost through any sort of efficiency of scale. Agreed. All right. Well, what's the total potential market size globally of district energy? It's at this stage, and here it's a bit challenging to get the numbers, but at this stage, heating and cooling overall makes up half of final energy consumption in the world, which is a number or a fraction that surprises most people because it's sort of like electricity is running with most of the attention, whereas actually we have half of final energy consumption consumed for heating and cooling services. So that's an important number to bear in mind. Yeah, hugely important. And then as a total energy demand for heat in the world is 205 exajoules. That was the IEA number for 2015, which is the latest I can find. Okay. Probably, I think it's risen to, let's say, 210 by now. And then district energy makes up just a fraction of that. We have in total in the world, I've seen numbers of 16 exajoules. So that's a tiny bit of total energy supplied by district heating and district cooling as a part of the total heat demand. So 210 exajoules, that's about 58.3 million gigawatt hours. Mm -hmm. Or let's see, 58.3 petawatt hours. That's a lot of energy. It is. <laughs> And out of that, you have the 16 exajoules, which I think it's equivalent to around four petawatt hours, which is supplied by district heating. So it's a fraction that is quite small compared to the total demand, but not insignificant, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's just a potentially a huge market. Uh -huh. I mean, so that's, that's the need in terms of heat or heating and cooling. But to convert that into a market size that makes sense in terms of what you can actually invest in or what you can actually build, that's a different question, right? Do we have any idea of like how much of this capacity the industry is actually going after on, a, on an annual basis or anything of that kind? It's difficult to tell because there has been studies in Europe looking at this where we saw a potential for, I think it was 50% of households covered by district heating by 2050. That is the Heat Roadmap Europe by Aalborg University and others. And then when we look at the world more broadly, these numbers are somewhat limited. The IEA has in their World Energy Outlook seen a slight increase in their net zero energy scenario 
where they I think they have an increase from around 10% by today to 11% by 2030. So it's quite a small increase that they see, but it's quite big numbers that we're dealing with. So you can decide for yourself whether that's big or whether that's small. So when we look at the thermal energy storage part, IRENA has a number of 2019 of 234 gigawatt hours of thermal energy storage capacity. And if we just compare that to battery at that point, battery had a capacity of around 200 gigawatt hours. So by 2019, batteries and thermal energy storage were roughly on par. Hmm. Then projecting into the future for the next decade, Arena finds that there'll be a potential for at least 800 gigawatt hours of thermal energy storage. Wow. Okay. So that's potentially a fourfold increase mm -hmm. in thermal energy storage globally over the next decade. So I appreciate the clarification you made there that I changed context from talking about district energy to total thermal energy storage. But at least that helps to kind of put things in perspective. Yes. And I think that comparison to the the total battery deployment is a helpful way to think about it as well. All right. Well, what are the district energy systems in use at commercial scale today? Today, we have spread around the world where U.S. has around, and sorry, I'm going into the exajoules once again. It's okay. <laughs> but half an exajoule, which is around 2.2 petawatt hours. EU has around three exajoules, Russia, five exajoules, and China, six exajoules. So you can say district energy is also known as sort of a socialist technology, hmm. which I would just quickly say that it's not necessarily the case. <laughs> but for historical reasons, this technology has been deployed quite widely in the former communist countries. That's interesting. And perhaps we can, we can also discuss why that is. Yeah, I think it would be worth discussing that because clearly technologies don't have a political orientation. <laughs> I agree. I think district energy is as socialist as roads and sewers and water networks <laughs> and so on and so forth. So probably you're quite right in that. I would say that the reason for the difference in those countries is that they have had an approach to planning across energy infrastructure, including heating, which is different from, let's say, UK or US, where things have been quite a lot more market-based. Right. And just to give you an example in Denmark, which is, I should say, for listeners not familiar, some people think that we're a socialist country. I think officially, at least under the current government, we're a social democrat country where free markets are operating just as freely as anywhere else. <laughs> so we have had a long tradition of energy planning, and I think that's the common denominator with Russia and China, for instance. Right. And the reason for that was the energy crisis in the 1970s. Denmark had, a, I think, 98% dependence on imports of energy, mostly oil from the Middle East. And when the energy crisis struck, people suddenly became aware of the very large security supply issues th that we had and quickly wanted to diversify. And we did so by starting to explore for oil and gas in the North Sea. And we also did it by changing our heating infrastructure to district heating plants and planning for that in order to increase the energy efficiency of the whole energy system. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because you're reminding me now that we actually covered some of that history in our first episode on Denmark's energy transition, which was with Justin Gertis way back in episode 17. Mm. 
Yeah, fascinating. Okay. So I take your point that district energy is the kind of thing that you get with central planning more easily than when you get it with a market approach, because again, it's basically infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of explains why there hasn't been as much of it in the U.S. I guess in the U.S., the best example I can think of is probably the steam pipe system in New York City. Exactly. That is, to my knowledge, at least the largest district energy system in U.S., and it's from 1882. Yeah. So... From your previous home state in Colorado, I think Denver actually has the oldest system from 1880. Is that right? As far as I can see. Yeah. I did not no, know no, that. No, no, huh. no. So uh, close to home in some way. Yeah. And for New York, it's a very large system. And people are, I guess, subconsciously familiar with it because it features in a lot of movies with the steam coming out from pipes in the roads. Right. There's a classic scene of taxi driver and perhaps you can recall different scenes where this is part of it. Right. So this is basically the New York steam system, which supplies, I think, more than 3 million New Yorkers. So it's quite a big system. That's incredible. And just to pick up on that, there are very different sizes of systems. We also discussed it before, but just to underline that I've seen systems with a few households, let's say a handful of 30, where they had access to a low-cost heat source, and then going into the very large systems like New York or the Chinese cities, where we have millions and millions of people being supplied by district energy. So, so the range is really quite substantial in what you can supply. In Denmark, in Copenhagen, where I'm sitting, we have around 1 million people supplied by district heating. Huh. And if I recall correctly, there's actually a number of Nordic countries that use district heating not just to heat buildings, but also to keep sidewalks free of ice. <laughs> yes, that's a quite exotic use of heating. I think I've seen, I'm not sure if I'm confusing Sweden or Norway, I think it's in Norway where they have it. And it's, of course, a very convenient way to avoid throwing salt or whatever you need to do to keep your sidewalks free. Right. Okay, so most district energy systems were built to provide heating during the winter months in cold northern countries, as we've just been discussing, especially these Nordic countries. But is there a significant untapped opportunity for district cooling, particularly in warmer climates like in the global south? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. 
Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And for today's news items, we bring you another exciting, extra-long episode of Cold Death Watch. Item 1. Banpu, Southeast Asia's biggest coal mining company, said in January that it will continue divesting of its coal business even though the surge in global coal prices has increased its revenues. Instead, the company plans to use the coal revenue windfall to accelerate its transition to renewable power. Banpu is on course to reduce the share of its earnings generated from its coal business from around 80% in 2020 to less than 50% by 2025. The company plans to continue shifting toward what it calls, quote, a sustainable power business with smarter and greener energy, and to get involved in mining operations for key minerals used in batteries, like nickel, magnesium, and cobalt. Banpu already has ownership stakes in battery production facilities in China and EV charging stations in Thailand. Banpu has several utility-scale renewable energy projects underway elsewhere in Asia, including a 50-megawatt wind farm in Vietnam, another 30-megawatt wind farm in Vietnam, and a 10-megawatt solar farm in Japan. Item 2. On February 9th, Duke Energy, the second-largest U.S. electric company by market value, announced that it will close all of its 11 remaining coal plants by 2035 in what it calls, quote, the largest planned coal fleet retirement in the industry. The company has already retired 56 coal units, representing approximately 7,500. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. XE Network.